This is Echo Zoe Radio, episode 182 for June 2023, with Dan Phillips on the World Tilting Gospel. Welcome to Echo Zoe Radio, the podcast outreach of Echo Zoe Ministries, where you'll hear about important topics affecting the church today. Our primary goal is to explore a variety of issues while remaining faithful to God and His Word. Stay with us for the next hour as your host, Andy Olson, shares his conversation with this month's guest. Here's your host, Andy Olson. I'm Andy Olson. Thanks for listening to Echo Zoe Radio. This is episode 182 for June 2023. June got away from me, and I'm unable to record a new episode this month. So this episode is a replay of episode 79 from November of 2014 with Dan Phillips. Dan was and still is pastor of Copperfield Bible Church in Houston, Texas. He's also the author of The World Tilting Gospel, which was the topic of discussion for episode 79 and for this replay episode. The original discussion was not recorded on video, so there's no video version of this episode. Show notes are available at echozoe.com slash 182. You'll find an outline of the discussion, a list of scriptures referenced in this episode, additional resources, and related episodes from the Echozoe archives. As I announced last month, our second film is now posted at the Locals page. The Conquest is in the pinned posts at the top of the page. So come on over to Locals and see that and Jerusalem's King. You can use the promo code in another pin post to come behind the paywall for free, where you'll get access to all of the premium content. And with that, here's my discussion with Dan. Welcome, Dan. Uh, such a privilege and a pleasure to have you on Echo Zoe Radio today. Great to be here, Andy. Thanks for asking me. Yeah. So today we're going to talk about the gospel, my favorite subject. And <laughs> <laughs> you wrote a book about the subject, and I just just finished it up last night, and I I loved it. It's called the World Tilting Gospel, and we're going to use oh, that as the the basis of our conversation. Before we get started, though, let's talk a little bit about you and and your ministry, and um, you know where do you find yourself in the church other than being an author? Well, um, I uh, I was raised by wonderful people who were not Christians and didn't grow up with the gospel, but the Lord saved me when I was seventeen. And um, I was in a non-Christian cult called Religious Science, and all of my plans for my life kind of were in that direction. So obviously, conversion shattered that. Um, I think a solid conversion does a lot of breaking at the same time that God is creating. Uh, The old life has to pass away. The old life has to break. And uh, a lot of my plans did break. I found myself filled with a love for God's Word, uh, just a desire to to dig into it, to learn it, to do it, to try to communicate it to others. And in time, I, I brought that to a pastor I knew because I, I needed, I was 17, I was in my senior year of high school. I needed some guidance as to what to do with my life. And I told him about that, and he said that that sounded like a pastor's heart, a shepherd's heart. And he just happened to be starting a, a training school for uh, pastors. And that actually just suited me really well. I, I had not been a good student. I was not disciplined. I was not focused. Um, I didn't have discipline. So 
discipline grew out of love for God's Word. I thought Greek would kill me, then I thought Hebrew would kill me, and, and here I am still. Um, but uh, uh, it was love for the Lord that, that impelled me through that, and then uh, taking um, more classes in Hebrew, and then eventually going to Talbot's Theological Seminary and earning a master's degree there, and then on into pastoral ministry. So um, jumping ahead, um, I started blogging on my own blog, and then Phil Johnson invited me to join him for Pyromaniacs. And at that time, I was on hiatus from pastoral ministry. I was doing IT support, uh -huh. but I was blogging, and I was preaching, and I was teaching whenever I could. Um, and Phil just got a hold of my blogging, and, and he was wanting to switch from being a solo act to having some people blogging with him. And he liked my writing. I loved his writing. Yeah. And he, he um, surprised the life out of me by inviting me to join him at Pyromaniacs. And so I was, I was real happy to do that. And out of that came um, the attention of uh, people who work with publishers. And they asked me if I would be interested in writing a book. Well, I'd long wanted to, to write some books. So um, the World Tilting Gospel specifically grew out of actually the first conference at which I met Phil and Frank in the flesh. I'd never met them before mm -hmm. and went to a founders conference in Oklahoma uh, near where Phil grew up, well, where Phil grew up, and um, met them there for the first time. And, and I'm sure we'll get to that, but something that David Wells said just set off a, a fireworks display in my head that eventually culminated in World Tilting Gospel. But just moving the, narrow head, the, the narrative ahead, in, um, also because of the blogging, I came to the attention of a fellow who went to a church in Houston, Texas, that found itself needing a pastor, and he, uh, you know, I was looking to pastor, and he wrote me and asked me if I'd consider moving to Houston, and I said, isn't it awfully hot there? <laughs> he, said, he said, it's only hot outside. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> so we started uh, dialogue and interviews, and, and we just fell in love with the people here, uh, absolutely loved them. Two and a half years later, we still absolutely love them. Love being here. I came here in March of uh, 2012, and I'm still pastoring at Copperfield Bible Church in Houston, Texas. Okay. And so I wrote World Tilting Gospel, wrote another book called God's Wisdom in Proverbs. Ah, oh, yeah. That's it for now. Well, let's jump into this subject. I mean, it's so deep and so hard, I and mean, we can't barely scratch the surface in an hour-long interview. Uh, let's just jump oh, in. We'll try. The, we'll, we'll try, but let's jump in at the beginning. And I mean, you're, you right. really go thoroughly through the gospel. That's the the book is all about the gospel and, and not just why we need it and and what it is, but how we pro progress as Christians once we have the gospel and it's well-rounded. But um, let's just start at the beginning, you know. Um, you jump in with who we are and, and our situation, why we need the gospel. Amen. I do, you're right. <laughs> you talk a little bit about um, that, that basis and who we are and, and in Adam. Well, if you, if you don't mind, let me go back a half step to the the remark that really um, set this off for me. It was with, uh, because it's it's what is um, maybe a unique aim and focus of the book. Uh -huh. um, David Wells is a is a theologian, a professor. He's written a number of books called uh, No Place for Truth and God in the Wasteland. Some of them is a little dry reading, but they're they're very solid, very good. Um, and he was one of the speakers at this Founders Conference in Tulsa. And one of the things that he said was 
Um, he was talking about preaching the truth of the cross in a postmodern age, and he said, Christianity is not just an experience, we need to remember, but it is about truth. The experience of being reconciled to the Father through the Son by the work of the Holy Spirit all happens within a worldview. This worldview is the way God has taught us in his word to view the world. That is why the Bible begins with Genesis 1-1 and not with John 3-16. And I thought that that was such a good point. Um, because, and, and a lot of evangelism does start with John 3.16, but the result is we end up, uh, to quote him from one of those lectures that, that, that I heard there, he said, our task is to tell people who no longer know what sin is, no longer have the categories to understand it, no longer see themselves as sinners, and no longer have room for these categories in their non-moral universe, that Christ died for sins of which they do not think they're guilty. In other words, we're talking about salvation from something that to them is not a non-issue mm-hmm. to something that to them is not desirable, because they're, it's, it's the worldview. The gospel is not just a matter of a couple of minor adjustments. It's a whole transformation of our worldview. It, it tilts our world upside down. Oh. So, yeah, so I start with how do we even see ourselves? How do we even view ourselves? Because that makes that makes all the difference. Do we see ourselves as evolved animals? Do we see ourselves as parts of God, or do we see ourselves the way the Bible portrays us? That's so important to start there, because you're right. In this day, our worldviews are so so off kilter in the West in America that we have a hard time even communicating with each other. We're so politicized. Right. I mean, we've got this radical politicization in our country and in in the west in general and few people understand that the root of that polarization is a radically different worldview between two different camps yes yeah and so when you um you listen to the world today and you see what it where it's coming from really the gospel of at least america today is follow your heart. That's the gospel. Uh-huh. Your heart will never steer you wrong. Um, you need to do what's in your heart. You need to be true to your heart. I just uh, was listening today to a, uh, an atheist who's coming out as a transgendered woman who is not going to get a sex change right away and is still going to dress like a man but wants to be treated like a woman, and on and on. And that it just grows out of someone who's, who's bought that gospel that what he feels has to be right, that what he really wants, what he feels in his heart, so all of his attention is inside himself with the assumption that what he's getting from within, within himself is, is reliable, it's good, it's worth following. And so that's why I start with what the Bible says about what's inside of us, which uh, in uh, Jeremiah seventeen nine, the Word of God says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Mm-hmm. So I talk about what the Bible says the heart is, and I talk about what that sickness, that that, that uh, desperate illness is. The heart is is where we have our worldview. The heart. A lot of people think your heart is is your feelings. Not in Scripture. Primarily, the heart is where we do our our thinking and our deciding and our treasuring. It's 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 the center of our lives, and so. What it is colors the way we see everything. Now, if the Bible said the heart is fundamentally sound, you know, or the heart is um, inherently wise, well, then 
that it would make all the sense in the world just to listen to our hearts. Yeah. But instead, what the Bible says is our hearts are, uh, the Hebrew word is uh, a cave. A cave is, is like the word for Jacob, Yaakov. Uh, Jacob was a, 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 a flim-flam artist. He was a conniver. He was a trickster. And so um, Jeremiah would know that his Hebrew readers would make that connection. Um, that he's suggesting that our hearts are little Jacobs inside of us. They're little uh, flim-flam artists. They're tricksters. They're deceivers. And not only are they uh, deceptive, but he says they're desperately ill, which is a word that's used of um, of incurable diseases. Mm-hmm. So right there, we're told that, that you know, in a manner of speaking, we're born with spectacles over our eyes, glued into place that distorts the way we look at everything. Yeah, and... You move on to um, what happened in the garden with probi- – uh, I'm sorry. I'm just looking at chapter 2 here. Yep, chapter 2. And I see a, th- a, th- a list of three items here, man's Preparation, probation, and prostration. Yep, three Ps. You know a preacher wrote that. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> so man is uh, prepared by being not not a highly evolved animal, not a product of, of – uh, uh, growing up from within creation, but God created him into creation. God, God made him as an image bearer. He he equipped man. I, I go into the how the narrative of Genesis highlights the creation of man. The structure of the six days yeah. um, makes a, a special kind of narrative ta-da uh-huh. for when man is created, and man is created with things true of him that's true that are true of no other creation. He is created as God's image. He's meant to represent God in creation. So he's created with what it takes to have a relationship with God and to exercise authority for God over creation. Everything starts off great. He's, he's, that, that's the kingdom of God. God has created the kingdom of God. He's created a perfect creation, and he's put man in it, and he has told man he wants man to rule under him. But there'd be no moral character to this rule if God did not give commands. And he, he does give positive and negative commands. He says to fill the earth and subdue it positively, eat anything you want from the garden positively. Negatively, he says, do not eat of this one tree. And the day that you eat it, most tamuth, you will absolutely die. You will die dead, mm-hmm. he tells him. So there's the one line he must not, uh, must not cross. And don't you know God creates Eve to help Adam rule over animal creation and where do we find our heroine <laughs> but standing in the one place in all of the world that she has no business being, that she has no positive purpose there. She's standing at the tree talking to a creation that she's supposed to rule, that Adam is supposed to guard the garden against. Uh, God's enemy, the serpent, who's wily and crafty, and first thing he does is he attacks the sufficiency of Scripture. He attacks the inerrancy of Scripture. I know we might. A lot of people would say, "Well, that's anachronistic," but this is the whole body of revelation that they had at that time. And Satan goes straight for the connecting point between man and God, which is God's word. Right. And he suggests that God didn't tell them enough, and that what God told them wasn't absolutely reliable. Does that sound contemporary? <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly. That's why we're having a conference about the sufficiency of Scripture. Yeah. That's exactly. Well, in his. That that main lie that he got through to her is still still told to this day that you will be like God. 
why would he change his sales line? It works so well. Because here's the thing. If they accept Scripture as what it is, then they must take a position of epistemological submission to God. That is, they've got to think God's thoughts after him. They've got to form their view of the universe after what God says. But if you say that that word is not sufficient and not fully authoritative, well, then I'm in charge. And that, that was, like I said, that was his big product. That was his sale line. You will be as God. Yeah. And so Eve had been told everything she needed to know about that fruit. She'd been told everything she needed to know. Don't eat it. That's all she needed to know. <laughs> Don't eat it, God says, and when you do, you'll die. And yet she decides, well, I'm going to make up my own mind about this fruit. And so that's the birth of the world, and that's the birth of the of the of the desperately sick heart. Right. She looks at it, and she doesn't see one thing wrong with it. It looks like exactly what she needs. So she buys Satan's lion, takes a bite, and then she says, "Honey," and Adam, though knowing better, wants to keep peace at home. I guess he's just been standing there quiet. He's the one who's supposed to guard the garden. He's the one who's supposed to guard his wife and and serve her, and yet he has let this enemy fool her, and now he goes along, and when he does it, uh, all of us are involved in that fall and, and, and in that guilt. So that's uh, that's the prostration. I just fall just doesn't seem like a strong enough word. It's 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 a it's disastrous. Immediately you start you see death immediately. Right. Um, not not in so much that they clutch their chests and fall over and stop breathing, but in that they uh, immediately show that their entire view of everything has been shattered. Mm-hmm. So they're seeing everything different, and they're seeing everything wrong. Instead of seeing God as the most desirable being in the entire universe, the moment he turns up, what do they do? They run and hide. Yep. And Adam, instead of seeing his wife as someone he's supposed to protect and shelter— what does he finger. see her as? He sees her, huh? He points his finger. That's right. He sees her as someone to throw under the bus. Yeah. He sees her as cannon fodder. You know, basically <laughs> someone he can hide behind. Yeah. And instead of someone, it's and someone instead of someone to step in front of and protect, he's someone he's going to step behind. Well, he takes it a step further than that. Beyond just blaming her, he turns and he has the chutzpah to point his finger at God and say, "That's the woman That's you right. gave me." That's right. That's right. Yeah. Absolutely. So obviously his view of God is shattered, his view of his wife is shattered, his way of relating, um, you know, up and out, his way of relating horizontally and vertically is shattered. He thinks he can hide behind the bush from the God who created the bush. <laughs> yeah. he's, he's dead. He's, he's, he's messed up. And, and this is a world, this is not something that you can fix by just correcting each thing. No, see, you can't hide behind that bush. God can see you. Oh, okay, then I'll hide behind the tree. You know, because it's it's not just his conclusions that are that are wrong. It's his whole way of processing information mm-hmm. that is now wrong. He was God-centered. Now he's Him-centered, and that's where we are. That's right. we're all born that we're, we're all children of Adam, and we may not have his hair color or his skin color, but we got his way of looking at the world. So, as a kind of a more um recent reformed understanding i mean this is where we get the doctrine of total depravity that yep from the bible <laughs> from, from the bible yeah from but the whole bible. right but yep. it, it, it since the the middle ages it's had this title total depravity we put this this term to it and and that's really what it's about it's what it means it's that our our whole self is is consumed and 
overtaken by this faulty worldview that has resulted from the sin in the garden and continues That's to right. this day. That's right. Our whole our whole worldview is flipped upside down. It's it's not that every one of us is as bad as we can be. It is that sin has touched every part of us. Exactly. Yeah. And corrupted every part of us. Yeah. And that continues on through this day. This is uh, this is the the problem of humanity. It, That's chapter three, like father, like son. It, 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 this wasn't a isolated incident, and it's it's not it's not just Paul's teaching that we fell in Adam. It's Moses' teaching. It's the teaching of the Book of Genesis as well. That uh, mm-hmm. sin is uh, something Adam committed and brought into the race, and it's uh, set up shop generation after generation. Right. So. With I mean, this is such a fundamental problem. This is this is the foundation of the scripture in our entire world, not just our worldview. If we have a proper worldview, it points to that. But the world is built on this whole concept of having fallen from from uh, God's order. The next step is His plan. What does God do about it? Yeah, yeah. We're up to part two, and we see that that God was not caught off guard at all. Um, God had a plan right from the beginning. But the, the way I introduce that, though, is imagining a um, a surgery. Uh, you go into a, a surgery, a surgical room, and you see all sorts of surgical equipment um, engaged and firing at full capacity. And yeah. you see a, a team of medical experts working on this individual. And you see off to the side, there's another team waiting for them so that when the first team wears out, that team can can take over. And you look at that and you think, wow, the person they're working on must really be a desperate case. Mm-hmm. And this obviously is not, you know, it's not an appendix, right? It's, it's not a splitter. It's not right. a, a mole removal or a wart removal. Uh, this is something absolutely uh, disastrous that's happened to this person. If it takes that much to treat them, then I imagine switching scenes, and now we see, I think, one of the most horrifying scenes that's ever happened on our planet, which is the sight of the Son of God falling down on the ground, uh, sweating as if he were shedding blood, and pleading with his father. His father has never said no to him through all eternity, Mm -hmm. and saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but you will. What this is the this is the person who's never backed down. He's never flinched. He has stared down crowds of angry demons and sent them yelping like like kicked dogs. He has told the storm to shut up, and it did. Uh, he's faced rulers. He's faced um, dignitaries. Never never flinches. Never a moment's flinch. But now whatever it is that he's facing horrifies him, mm-hmm. and you think, wow. That must really be a, a massive undertaking. What, why? And, and and you follow him out, and you see that the the sequel to that is him hanging on a cross, mm-hmm. beaten almost to death, now dying on this cross, spat on, uh, tortured, and dying under God's wrath and forsaken of God. And and you think, dear God, why? What what desperate ruin? must we be if it takes that to save us i like that you so framed that, it that way i like that you, you you juxtapose first you're starting we just talked about that whole worldview being flipped upside down 
in the garden and how that's carried through to humanity. And it has flipped us so much that we don't yeah. see sin for what it is. And the only way to really see how serious sin is, is what you just said. Look at the cross and look how Jesus so didn't want to go there or, or ask the God, take that from him. It's really the only way our our feeble little minds can even comprehend the state we're in. Well, that's absolutely right. We we trivialize sin. I mean, we even use the word to to modify things in a positive way. We say that something's sinfully delicious or mm-hmm. sinfully good, you know? I mean, that's like imagining us saying that something is child-molestingly good. Yeah. <laughs> it's wraithingly ra- delicious, you know? So people would be horrified if you use those words to right. modify something and, and make it sound good. And yet we use the word sin. So I, that's that's why I thought I would take that approach, that the, the measure of how disastrous sin was and 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 how disastrous its effect on us was, the measure of that is what it took to save us. Yeah, <laughs> it didn't it didn't take a a, a a legal transaction or a you know paperwork to save us. It took the Son of God giving everything He had to give. Well, it also reaches to the core of what uh, makes Christianity Christianity and what separates us from every other religious system on earth is. Right. Christianity is the only worldview that acknowledges that our situation is so bad we can there's there's not even a possibility that we can do anything to get out of it. We can't turn around, change our mind and just do good things and then get off the hook. I mean, it took the death of of God himself to right. undo what we did. That's right. Yeah. So that's, that's why the gospel is world-tilting. It's why I call it the world-tilting gospel. Mm-hmm. Too many people think that becoming a Christian is a matter of adopting a couple new viewpoints or, or altering a couple of their opinions. And in reality, it, it's, it, it's, a, it's a sea change. It's a paradigm shift. It's a complete change in the way we look at everything. Mm-hmm. Now, and I'm convinced that's why we see as many apostasies as we do. We see the, the Rachel Held Elvinses and the, you know, the others, uh, Heard Evans, um, the others who are you know, drifting off into affirming homosexuality, affirming this or that, the other thing. Right. It's because they, they didn't at the start realizing just how deeply sin had vitiated them and what a complete transformation the gospel is. Mm-hmm. And that's what I try to set on the world tilting gospel. That's why I start with the start and finish with the finish, you know, uh, mm-hmm. to, to show that it is a, it's a transformative encounter that changes the way we look at everything. Mm-hmm. And you get into the nature of uh, penal substitutionary atonement also. And I do endeavor to. Do you want to try to tackle that a little bit before we move on? Or, I mean, sure. That, that is... um, I, I, I just show that penal substitutionary atonement is not something that we first meet in Romans chapter 3. It's something we meet in Genesis chapter 3. Mm-hmm. That, that the first thing God did um, after man, woman sinned is that he... Uh, he made a blood sacrifice of an innocent victim on their behalf. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's penal substitutionary atonement right there. That is, uh, let me uh, break that down in case you've got someone listening who's unfamiliar with that phrase. <laughs> mm-hmm. Penal substitutionary atonement. In other words, there is there is a penalty owed. There is a guilty person who owes a legal penalty. Mm-hmm. And that penalty falls on a substitute. And that substitute pays the price on behalf of the guilty person. So Adam and Eve have sinned. And they're naked. Being naked before was no big. Now being naked is embarrassing because they have guilt. 
And so they try to cover it with vegetables, and God sheds the blood of an animal and covers it with animal skin. So mm-hmm. he's showing them right off the start their guilt would be dead with it would be dealt with by the bloodshed of another. And he says so also, and I, I get into this, I do some pretty thorough exegesis of this interpretation of, of uh, Genesis 3.15 in the World Tilting Gospel, that God promises a seed of the woman who would be struck on his heel, but with his heel would strike the serpent's head. Mm-hmm. So that would be a bloody wound, but in being wounded bloodily, he would destroy the representative of, of opposition to God. He would he would crush the serpent's head. So this is we haven't even gotten out of Genesis three, and <laughs> yeah. we already have a prophecy of penal substitutionary atonement. And so I just I do develop a bit how um, that we we get into the law of Moses, and you see bloody sacrifice, and you see the principle explained in uh, Leviticus seventeen eleven that the blood represents the life of the victim poured out in a bloody death on behalf of, in the stead of, the guilty victim. Mm-hmm. And so that uh, makes atonement for his sin, covers his sin. I like how you carried that on through the Old Testament in the sacrificial system to illustrate that, that the Israelites, especially in Jerusalem near the temple, would see this daily sacrifice going on. They'd see that every single day, right. all this blood being That's shed, right. and, and they would have this connection and understand that the sins that I'm committing— require that blood. That's right. They, they should, they had a pedagogical purpose. They should associate sin with bloodshed, with the substitutionary body atonement. Now, you get into modern Judaism, and, and they don't. They, they, they think they can atone for sin by good works, or this mm-hmm. or that or the other thing, but well, modern Judaism is an apostate Judaism. They are pushing like to get that back. <laughs> like Methodism and Presbyterianism are apostate <laughs> Christianity. Yeah, um, they uh, uh, at least the mainstream ones tend to be today. Yeah, um, they've lost what the Bible says about Judaism, just to teach that that takes bloody atonement. So though we did uh, uh, Testament, we did take a trip. I, I went over to Israel in February, and oh. uh, while we were over there, we we stopped by the Temple Institute, and it's it's quite an amazing oh. thing to see, and how um, if they were to be given permission or they if they could go up on the Temple Mount without worry about war breaking out, they could start that daily, that daily sacrifice could be started today. They have it. They've got the, wow. the, the they've got everything ready to go to at least begin the sacrifices. Uh, and they, and they want to do that within hours of getting the clearance to go. Uh-huh. They've got the, That's uh, interesting. yeah, the, the altar's already built. They've, I mean, you can see it in the temple Institute. They've got, it's just a, a, a brick altar. That would just take a few hours to disassemble from that building in the Temple Institute, which is only a, you know a few hundred feet, uh, you know at most a quarter mile from the Temple Mount. Take those bricks down, carry them over to the Temple Mount, and put it back up. They could have it up in about three hours. They say, so they're ready. Wow, that's really something. No, I I am of the school that sees that as uh, prophetically significant. I do think that that's gonna gonna happen. You know, that's that's our group was um, had our. I looked around, you know, my jaw was on the floor as they were describing what they are working towards. And I looked around with our group and everyone in our group had our jaws on the floor and Mm -hmm. what the prophetic significance was of what they are working towards. Mm -hmm. Unknowingly. Unknowingly, right. Yeah. You you don't have to know God's sovereign purpose to fulfill it. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Most people who do don't. Yeah. 
So, um, so yeah, I show how the Old Testament, and in fact, um, I also spend some time in Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12 uh, in the World Tilting Gospel, showing how that 700 years before Christ's birth, that is as if Isaiah were standing in front of the cross, mm-hmm. telling us what it means. He tells us about the death of this one person, not not a bull now or a goat or a lamb or a ram, right. but a person who's a servant of Yahweh is dying for the sins of his people and making full atonement for them. Full atonement, which the law of Moses never could make. That's why it had to be repeated every year. Mm-hmm. I also get into Hebrews 10 some and, and the wonderful way in which that author shows how final Jesus' sacrifice was. The, the Jews had a day of atonement, and they had, they had it every year. <laughs> so they had to repeat it because, you know, they couldn't finally one year say, all right, I think this one actually did it. So now all sin's gone, and we don't have to have day of atonement next year. <laughs> but they had to have it every year. <laughs> but when Jesus died, he said, it is finished. And the writer of the Hebrews confirms that, says this is one sacrifice, uh, unrepeatable, and no need to repeat it because Jesus did do away with sin. And that is that is framed by Isaiah 52, 13 to 53, 12. Mm-hmm. So no, another one of my points in writing the World Tilting Gospel is to show how the gospel is a Bible thing. It's not a Romans 3 thing. It's not a John 3, 16 thing. Mm-hmm. That, that's why that, that statement from David Wells so excited me. Mm-hmm. That it's a Bible thing. I don't really understand the Bible without understanding the things that are taught in Genesis 3, Leviticus 17, and Isaiah, and so forth. Well, Jesus did say it himself, that the volume of the book speaks of him. Yep, that's right. So uh, part three, you know, how do we get into that? How, how do we become part of this plan of redemption? Yeah, part two focuses on what God did to save man. Part three focuses on how I need to respond. Do I, do I just... If I read part two and I don't have an argument with it, does that mean I'm saved? The answer to that question is no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I talk about the two towering truths of justification and regeneration. Justification deals with my horrible record. Regeneration deals with my horrible nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, justification deals with the fact that I'm guilty and condemned before God. But suppose that you just did that. Suppose that you just washed away my sins, and left me the same person I was, what would be the next thing I'd do after that? Uh, it wouldn't take I'd me more than again. a minute, and I'd be sinning no. again. <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah, it wouldn't take a minute. It wouldn't take a second. It would take a nanosecond. I'd, yeah. I'd just feel proud about being cleansed, and then I'd be doomed again. Right. Um, so absolutely right. So God God does both. God takes care of our, our uh, record, and He takes care of our nature. Our record is uh, justification, and I, I explain that and go into the, the what the Greek is in the World Holding Gospel and, and go into Second Corinthians 5.21 and Romans 5 some. And the fact that what justification, what justification teaches is that Jesus bears our sins on his body on the cross and pays the penalty that we owed. And he's able to do that because his life is of infinite value. He, otherwise, he might be able to substitute for one other person. But he's out to save hundreds and thousands and millions and billions of people, and that is not a problem because his life is of infinite value. He, he could save a million human races a million times over and still have plenty of value left to start all over again, uh, such, such as he, yeah. such as his nature. So... Um, 
justification is, I, I just really, I, I did the negative side of it. It's, it's him taking our sins on himself and making atonement, and it is his righteousness being credited to us. It's, it's a forensic term. It's a courtroom term. Mm-hmm. It is God declaring us to be righteous, not making us righteous. It's not, it's not that Jesus starts making us behave ourselves. That's not justification. That's another doctrine. But it's that Jesus, Jesus behaved himself. Mm-hmm. And his righteousness is it's imputed to us, it's reckoned to us, it's credited to us. So there's a double exchange there. My my sin is credited to him and his righteousness is credited to me. So he undergoes the wrath and punishment I deserve, and I receive the acceptance and love that he deserves. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's what he does on the cross. That's justification. Uh regeneration is the change in my nature, uh, the fact that I'm dead in my trespasses and sins, uh, yet dead doesn't mean inactive. Dead, I'm still very active. I'm sinning more. I'm making my situation worse. Mm-hmm. And so what God does is by sovereign grace, he, um, the Old Testament calls it circumcision of the heart, and the New Testament calls it being born again. And uh, the Spirit of God gives me a new nature that, that, that repents and believes in the gospel. And that's... You give a little bit of your story on how that worked, and and we anyone who's had a genuine repentance and a genuine conversion, Christ has has in some way undergone that. But that change all of a sudden, and people notice. You know, you used to cuss like a sailor, and now, right, <laughs> you're you're you know kind of uncomfortable saying even kind of more mild words. But, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> right. So the. Um... Yeah, the the connection is through repentant faith, and I, I try to uh, spell out in the World Something Gospel what, what faith is and what repentance is. There's a, a lot of misunderstanding about both, obviously, and right. and that's that's very um, that's very sad because they're absolutely vital truths. Uh-huh. Um, a lot of people think of faith as being a blind act of the will, and a lot of people think of repentance as being uh, something just for Jews, or something that's just a matter of changing an opinion, mm-hmm. or something that's a matter of feeling bad, and none of that really gets there. So in uh, in the book, I try to, to explain that um, faith has three elements to it. It, it always is a response to God's Word. Mm-hmm. Uh, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of Christ, Romans ten seventeen, um, Genesis 15, the first time we see this, Abram believed God. And he credited to him as righteousness, Genesis 15, 6. So Abram believed the word from God. Same today. I hear the gospel, the word of God, and I believe. But what does believe mean? It means seeing what it means in the first place, seeing that it's true, and trusting myself to it. Like right. I, I use the example of a boat often. That, that I can, if, For one thing, if I don't know what a boat is, I can look at one and not know what I'm looking at, not even know what it's supposed to do. So that's why in evangelism we, we explain the gospel. God uses that. Somebody has to know the facts of the gospel before he can believe. He has to know who he's believing. There's no point going up to a lost person and saying, do you believe? Mm-hmm. Believe what? You probably didn't have any idea what the gospel is today. So first you've got to explain, that's a boat. Here's what a boat does. And uh, that's what you're looking at. That's how a boat functions. The next step is believing that that boat will hold me if I get into it. That Having a confidence in that boat that... Uh, that it would do what it's supposed to do. So hmm. I look at Jesus, I hear the gospel of Jesus, I understand what Jesus, who he is and what he did, and I, and I believe that he is a savior, that he is able to save, that his death is sufficient. 
but I'm still not saved till I get in the boat. A lot of demons believe the truth about Jesus. You are the Son of God, they confess. They're still demons. Mm-hmm. So knowing the truth about Jesus is uh, necessary, but what I need to do is I need to not just believe that he is Lord, but I need to believe that he's my Lord. I need to get in that boat. I need to trust him, cry out to him, lean on him alone to save me, look to him alone to save me. And that's what faith is. And and that involves repentance. I, I wish I'd read this from John Piper before I wrote the book. I would have used it. John Piper said that you can no more believe without repenting than you can face left and right at the same time. <laughs> and and that, yeah. that's a, a, it's a wonderful way of putting it. Yeah. Some people treat repentance as if the first thing I, you know, first I have to decide that I'm through with sinning. I have to give up drinking and being a homosexual or sleeping around or stealing. I have to take care of all that, and then I can come to Jesus. No. Right. <laughs> if you could do that, why would you need a Savior? That's not repentance. Yep. But in turning to Jesus, I do turn from my sin. When I turn to him, I turn from the lordship of me. Mm-hmm. I turn from slavery to my sin and love of it to trust in him. And the only reason I can do that is because God has breathed new life into my heart, set me free so I can believe in Jesus. That's another thing I really appreciated was I was reading was that you and I are both very reformed in our understanding of salvation. And, and that's very clear through this and that mm. this is a sovereign act of God. It's not like somebody can make the right choice therein. It starts with God raising dead sinners to life first yes, and everything else follows that. Yeah. Right. Right. That, that really probably is one of the big divisions between being a Calvinist and being something else. Does God give me life in response to something I do, or do I do what I do in response to God giving me life? Mm-hmm. And um, that ties into what you think about about the human will and and so forth. And as I see it, the human will is just your mind making choices. So yeah, your will is free. It's free to do anything that your mind wants to do. Then you ask the question, is your mind free? Well, that's mm-hmm. that's easy to answer. We spent the first part of our conversation talking about that. Exactly. No, my mind is deceived. My mind is is desperately sick. Yeah. I'm dead in trespasses and sins. So my my will will just keep deciding exactly what my mind wants to. My mind will hate the word of God and hate the authority of God and not be able to submit to it until God frees me. Yeah. Then I will freely choose Christ. I mean, otherwise you can stand outside Lazarus' tomb all day saying, "Lazarus, come forth! Lazarus, come forth!" Lazarus come forth, and if he's dead, he's not going to want to. Mm-hmm. But as soon as Jesus breathes life into him, why would he stay in a grave? Exactly. So when Jesus says, come forth, that's exactly what he wants to do, now that he's alive. Mm-hmm. So I heard the gospel as a lost person, hated it. Hated the, the Jesus of Christians. Hated the whole package. And then one day I hear the gospel, and it's the best news I ever heard. Who changed the gospel? Mm-hmm. Nobody. Nobody changed the gospel. That's right. right. God changed me. And then, I, then I was able to hear the gospel is what it is, the best news a sinner ever heard. And I came running to Jesus. Amen. So, not because I got smarter. It's because <laughs> God gave life out of, out of grace. Yeah. So so I've talked about that, and I talk about being born again, and I talk about um, new life is, is part four. Sanctification, uh-huh. growth in Christ. I wanted to get of- to jump into the um, the three different.
Christians, I guess, for lack of, <laughs> I say that, oh, okay. I say that in air quotes, the gutless gracers, yes, okay. crisis upgraders and whatnot. Right. That's a lot of, of my ministry. I know, you know, the people listening will know, but the, the purpose of what I do in the podcast, I, I talk about a lot of positive uh, doctrine, which is why I love talking about things like the world tithling gospel. I mean, this is as gospel as it gets. But then we'll yeah. also go about uh, misapplication, heresy, I mean, yep. any kind of uh, heterodoxy or heresy, and, and, and juxtapose the two, because it's always easiest to see why something's false when you understand the truth. And so I, I did appreciate with that perspective going through you know, chapters 10 and 11 and reading about gutless gracers, crisis upgraders, and then um, the mystics. Muzzy mystics. Muzzy mystics. Mm-hmm. Who are these three guys? Gutless Gracers are, they call themselves the, the, the Free Grace School, but I call them Gutless Grace, and I, I do want to clarify that. Um, probably people would think by Gutless Grace, I mean that they're cowards or they're not brave. I, I don't mean that at all, uh, not at all. Uh, what I mean is their concept of grace has no guts. But they, their, their concept of grace is almost a thing on paper. Um, I need to change my opinion about Jesus. Today I'm of the opinion that he's not the Son of God. Tomorrow I'm of the opinion that he is, and now I'm saved. Mm-hmm. My life may not change in any way. My life may never show any change in any way. But because I prayed that prayer, because I, I said I believe that he died for me, and I changed my column, you know, I, I moved my, my marker from the not Son of God column to the Son of God column, now I'm saved. And and their insistence is this is grace, and to teach anything else is not grace, it's, it's works, it's legalism, and so forth. And I, I stand second to no man in opposing legalism and salvation by works. They are absolutely right to oppose a legalistic gospel. They're just wrong in their identification of what, of what grace is and what legalism is, because they think grace doesn't—in effect, it doesn't do much for me besides on paper. It, it makes me a child of God on paper but it has no necessary impact on my life. So I spend a long time in World Tilting Gospel in Titus 2, verses 11 through 14, as an example, where Paul says, For the grace of God that brings salvation to all men has appeared, instructing us that by renouncing irreverence and worldly desires, we should come to live level-headedly and righteously and reverently in the present age, as we, as we await the coming uh, of Christ. And then he says that Christ regave himself, that he might redeem us from all lawlessness and might cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. So Paul's concept of grace is a dynamic, transformative power that, yes, does remove my sins and guilt from me, and, and yes, does move me to repentant faith, and yes, does... Uh, bring me to where Christ's righteousness is imputed to me, but it doesn't stop there. Uh, making me a new person, grace empowers me to live a new life. Grace empowers me to begin walking with Christ. Grace empowers me to begin growing in holiness. Now, no, not perfection. Would to God that it were. I've been working at it for four years, and it's it's hard slogging. Um, but then I'm a particularly hard case. But <laughs> but. Uh, Grace is the only reason why I slog. Grace is the only reason why I care to do anything about it. But grace is a sufficient reason. Grace it has guts to it. It has power. It's not like a, 
a little model car that doesn't have anything. You've got to work it by your hand. It's got a big engine under the hood. Um, and, you know, it, that, that, oh, that makes so much more peace out of more scriptures. When you're a gutless great person, you, you have to explain away so many verses. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. This is the love of God that we keep his commandments. Anyone who says he uh, loves God but doesn't obey his uh, commandments is a liar. You know, on and on and on and on. If you're in that position, you got to come with tortured explanations. But believing in the power of the grace of God, you just take them as take them as what they are. Yeah. So that, in a word, is gutless grace. Then, did you want to interject something? Or the, well, I just want to ask about the crisis upgraders. Crisis upgrader is the idea that I can go from Christian 1.0 to Christian 2.0 by some sudden experience. And there have been various versions of it. One classic non-charismatic one is Keswick, K-E-S-W-I-C-K. Um, you and your, your hearers might have heard of uh, the deeper life or the consecrated life or uh, the sold-out life. That's the idea that you come to a place in your Christian life where you lay it all on the altar. And that upgrades you from being the Christian you were to a different kind of Christian. It's not a matter of incremental growth. It's a matter of uh, well, like downloading a, you know, you're in version 1.0 of the software, and now you're in 2.0. It's a different software. It's mm -hmm. not just a few changes. It's a, it's a whole different software. And that's the way this is. Um, so now I live in victory, and I don't sin anymore. Or the charismatic version, of course, is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, right? That's, that's the position of the Assemblies of God. Right. Go to their doctrinal statement, and they say that, you know, you believe in Jesus and you're saved. And then the baptism in the Holy Spirit will equip you to really serve God and be fruitful for him. So again, two kinds of Christians. One, you know, slugging along with just Jesus, somehow barely making it by. Then the other gets the baptism in the Holy Spirit, speaks in tongues, and they're superpower Christians. Mm -hmm. So I always like to co I compare that to, I, mean, I use like the Jedi analogy, you know, your Star Wars analogy. You've got, mm -hmm. you, you've got the rebels, you know, that's just your, your average Christian is just, you know, they're on the right side of things, but they're just, normal guys and then you got the jedi and they're supposed to be you know, the, the super yeah, christians yeah. and they've got That's it figured right. out super training and superpowers yeah right but the but the, the biblical models of christian life what's the what's one of the most common words walk mm -hmm. what's a walk well it's not a series of jumps it's left foot right foot left foot right foot what are some of the analogies of, of a god being a godly person being a tree by rivers of water, Psalm 1, uh, being a, a vine, I'm sorry, a branch and a vine, uh, John 15, um, these, are, these are gradual growths. There may be ebbs and flows in it, but this is a, it's, a, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon, it's a, it's a long-term thing, and, and that, that's the trouble. People are impatient. And in our society, we have many ways of getting things instant, you know. Yep. Can you remember when it took more than five minutes to get popcorn? <laughs> Do you remember when you used to have to boil your hot dog <laughs> yeah. and it would take like 10 minutes? <laughs> I'm old enough that I remember when it used to take 10 minutes to make a hot dog. Oh, wow. I couldn't pop it in my no, I couldn't pop it in a microwave and get it in one minute or two minutes tops bursting open. Uh, well, we want everything instantly today. And and we want spirituality that way, and that is just not the, the only thing instant is conversion. Conversion mm -hmm. is instant. But the process of that begins, takes every minute of every hour of every day of the rest of my life here.
Yeah, absolutely. And uh, so that's crisis upgrade. It's it's and and the trouble is both those defeat people, both those crush people. Yeah. And and they'll just give up because the crisis upgrade. I think about the person who's prayed and prayed and prayed for the baptism of the Spirit, never speaks in tongues. He knows he's not really equipped to serve God. He can't really, you can't really worship. He can't really witness. I mean, he's just sunk. He's on, mm-hmm. he's on track one. He can't get to track two. Why? What's wrong with him? What a horrible way to live. Oh yeah, so that's absolutely. What they, they chase from meeting to meeting and from outpouring to outpouring, looking for this thing that the Bible says is in Christ mm-hmm. and in the Word of God. So the third is the muzzy mystic. That's the person, the uh, let go and let God type, who thinks that maybe my mind is really an enemy to my spirituality, and what I really need to do is I need to just give over to God, and God have take control of my of my life. And uh, I've heard it. I don't know if you have, but I, I heard it like this. They'll say, "Stop trying to be a Christian. Let Jesus be a Christian for you. Right. Stop trying. Let go and let God um, be still and know." And so this is all mysticism, and it's a horrible misreading of uh, John 15. One of the most popular authors, older authors, is um, Andrew Murray, um, whose books look so deep, and they're just mysticism. They're just they're, they're horrible stuff. And the Bible is very active. The Bible is filled with commands, and not a one of them is addressed to the Holy Spirit. And the Bible tells me to continue in Christ's Word, tells it tells me to put off the old man, put on the new. It tells me to submit myself to my spiritual leader and to pray without ceasing and to put on the armor of God and and to bear others' burdens and to love. And, you know, all those commands are addressed to me and uh, me as a born-again man in Christ. And so I must respond. And to say, oh, I just can't do those things. I'm just going to go limp like jello and let God do those things. That's not deep. That's not rich, mystical Christianity. That's sin. That's disobedience. That's God telling me to do something and me saying, no. <laughs> That's what sin is. But the trouble is so many of these people, they feel like they've got a deeper kind of Christianity. And again, it's grindingly defeating. It's a desperate way to live. It's, it's, it's sad, and it's not biblical at all. Well, it really sounds like that would be, at least in some cases, kind of a reaction to that crisis upgrader. You know, somebody's struggling and mm-hmm. trying to get to that next level, and then finally it dawns on them that there is yeah. no X level, so they go in the opposite direction to the extreme, and then just like, well, I, you know, then I'm going to let go and let God, like you said. Right, and then they just they get into a, an endless do loop, is uh, what the computer programmers would say, where something just continually uh, executes itself over and over again and never never gets anywhere. Yeah. Because, you know, they're told, well, what you need to do is you need to, you need to stop. You need to yield. You need to let God. Oh, okay. Wait, who needs to do that? Well, you do. Well, wait a minute. I thought you told me that I need to not do anything. Well, that's right. You need to not do anything. Okay, so what do I do? You need to give up and yield. Well, oh, wait. I need to do that? I, well, how do I do that when I'm not supposed to do anything? And, and the answer is, you know, if, if you're not living this kind of consecrated life, you haven't yielded enough. Mm-hmm. Try, try to work, try to make sense out of that. But the, the, the biblical spirituality is so much more of a cleaner, crisper, truthful thing that God speaks to us. He speaks his word to us. 
that's how he communicates with us. He, he, uh, that's how he connects with us. Like the Apostle John says in 1 John 1, 1 through 3, we have fellowship with God by having fellowship with the Apostles' doctrines. That's how God reveals himself to us in the Word of God. So he tells me everything I need to know. And the, the trouble, the unintended trouble of muzzy mysticism is I'm looking at me. I'm looking inside of me, straining my ear for a word from God, a whisper, a still small voice. And what Scripture says is to look to Jesus, right? Mm -hmm. It says to do it by looking into the mirror, and that mirror is his word. His word is what reveals him to me. So I'm to look out of myself to Jesus. But muzzy mysticism sends me back into the trackless, abyss of my own subjectivism. That's a horrible way to live. Yep. And not biblical, but more to the point. Yeah. And, you know, we're through maybe, well, 11 chapters so far we've discussed, kind of gone over, and you've got 14. So I want to, <laughs> I do want to, I, I finished the book, so I want to get there, <laughs> I guess. All right. Um, you talk about the flesh. And in this, what you know, this battle we have with the flesh. What is the flesh, and and what is that battle? The, the flesh is uh, the, what we what we'd rather have, be able to forget, but mm. can't. It's it's like the remaining. Um, it's it teaches us that our biggest problem is not outside of us. <laughs> our biggest problem isn't our spouses or our society or even our our, our lousy pastor. Our biggest problem is between our ears. Mm -hmm. It's the remaining effects of sin. It's the, the learned um, behavior patterns that we had developed um, before we were converted. It is the fact that our, our unglorified body still responds to temptation and stimulation. And um, Paul depicts it in Romans 7:14 through uh, 25 as an ongoing struggle that he, he wants to do what's right, but he's always got what's wrong right there at hand. And um, that's why he ends up longing for the redemption of his body, because he knows that the, the only time that he will be completely freed from that is when, the, when either he goes to Jesus or Jesus comes from, for him, mm -hmm. either he dies and goes to Christ or Christ comes, resurrects him, raptures him, catches him away. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, transforms him so the flesh is our struggle ever until we come to be with christ and the only way to counter the flesh is not by the flesh but it's by the holy spirit god gives every christian of his, his holy spirit and the holy spirit counters the flesh so that we don't carry out what the flesh wants us to do mm -hmm. but to try to do otherwise is to try to battle the flesh with the flesh to try to battle the flesh with mere willpower or determination and that's trying to pull myself up by my boots. Yeah. And you mentioned the Holy Spirit. You had a whole chapter on the Holy Spirit. And... Yes, I know. We cessationists aren't supposed to believe in the Holy Spirit. <laughs> I, got whole chapter. I got a whole chapter on the person and work of the Holy Spirit. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, We've got to leave a little bit the... for the readers, but... Uh, that's yeah. right. Well, yes, that's right. Yeah, read the book. Yeah. But the Holy Spirit is, is one of the glorious... Um, accomplishments of Christ on the cross that he the, the you read in acts that when Peter talks about the baptism in the spirit he says that um Jesus received this promise from the father and so poured out this that you now see and hear so 
one of the things Jesus won on the cross was to be able to give us the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist said, I baptize you in water, but one comes after me who will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. So he baptized all of his followers with, with water. That was the characteristic of his ministry. That's why he's called John the Baptist. Mm-hmm. And so Jesus baptizes all of his followers with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's, it was a terrible um, false doctrine that some bought into separating the baptism of the Spirit uh, from conversion. But it's the baptism of the Spirit that, that is a defining part of our conversion. What Paul says, if, if anyone doesn't have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to him. Mm-hmm. So when, on conversion, we are baptized with the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ, and he comes to dwell in us permanently. Uh, he was around in Old Testament times, but mostly you see him working on theocratic individuals, people who uh, had major purposes for God's kingdom, um, judges, prophets, kings, and such like. But Moses said, well, I wish God would give his spirit to everybody. That's these days. God gives his spirit to all his people, and his spirit indwells us, and his spirit does what he loves to do, which is he glorifies Christ to us, and he forms the character of Christ in us. That's what the real Holy Spirit does. Yeah. He doesn't move us to bark and roll around and act like idiots. (laughs) Absolutely. Do you want to hit the end, or should we save that for people to read the book? No. No, thank you for asking. Thank you for asking. (laughs) Now, the end is kind of a surprise. Don't skip ahead. (laughs) All right. Uh, I'm telling your readers. I know you read the whole thing. But but, uh, read through the whole book, then you get to the end, and... uh, well, anybody that's been listening for any length of time and understands how much I focus on the gospel as we're talking about everything will kind of have an idea because it 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 really is much of the, the kind of thing that we talk about throughout a lot of our interviews when we're talking about the gospel and how the gospel progresses us through once we're saved. And uh, it, it's that life after once um, you get into the, the kingdom of God and um, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's, it's great. I, you know, it's, uh, everything I think of, you just are more articulate than I can be. Well, that's very kind of you. So let me, let me take a chance here. Um, mm-hmm. uh, take a risk and, and ask you what, without giving away the end, what effect did it have on you? Did it have the effect of kind of recasting what you just read and ramping it up to another degree or, or how would you describe it? To some degree, but I, I mm-hmm. top of my head was that you know this was something that I've I've uh, wanted to talk about on the podcast for mm-hmm. a couple of years now that because mm-hmm. um, I've really been as I grow in in the knowledge of the of the Lord and the Bible it it really summed up very well kind of the conclusions I'm coming to with how we get through life how we progress through sanctification how we live our mm-hmm. lives you know and it's um the the gospel doesn't just bring us in and then kind of leave us to figure things out. It carries us all the way to the end. It's that, you know, we started right. with the beginning and we talked about the situation that we got in through Adam and Eve. And, and I, I brought up how that in the reformation came to be known as total depravity. And this brings us to the other side of the, the doctrines of grace in that perseverance of the saints and how the gospel causes us to persevere. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, that was um, 
that was a major change in how I understood things when I when I was a younger Christian and, and even beginning pastoral ministry. Mm-hmm. I saw the gospel as primarily how you become a Christian, and I did not see fully. Well, I'm sure I still don't see fully. Mm-hmm. But I didn't see as I see today what daily ramifications the gospel has and continues yeah. to have, and how how world tilting it is, how how it continues to. That's the word I want. Revolutionize the way that we look at everything, the way that we handle even our own feelings and reactions, the way we relate to our world, yep. the way we think about ourselves and others and, and God primarily. And continually, the gospel has an impact on that. It's very uh, well said. Well said. And the the title you have, The World Tilting Gospel, it sounds like a catchy, just a catchy term, but that it really does describe well. I mean, they say don't judge a good book by its cover, but the the title is very well suited to thank you the whole First thing came from acts, acts chapter 17 where in, in ephesus they complained these men who have turned the world upside down have come here <laughs> yep. and uh um they i i observed that we don't seem to be turning the world upside down anymore and that's because we're not i said to ephesus thessalonica uh because we're not um preaching the gospel we've we've lost the mm-hmm full orb centrality. Well, unfortunately, too many churches don't even truly get the gospel. They don't That's not understand it. It's not, the way to, yeah. it's not, not, not popular. It's not the way to build a big church. Yeah. It's not what people want to hear. Yeah. Well, Dan, uh, I so greatly appreciate it, and I typically like to close with uh, two things. Um, first of all, I like <laughs> to ask, you know, is there anything that we didn't cover that you'd like to throw in? And then second would be, how can people follow you you know the obviously we talked about a book and you brought up a, a two blogs talk about your ministry and where people can find you too i i missed a verb there how can people do what to me how can people find you find me okay all find right. you or follow um, you <laughs> let me uh let me break your your first question into two uh if i can i'll, I'll make them shorter for the two sure. uh, one is uh, we just might mention that i do have another book called god's wisdom in proverbs Mm-hmm. And they'll see uh, links to that if they go to the Pyromaniacs blog. Um, God's Wisdom in Proverbs is both an introduction to how to read the book of Proverbs and a series of studies in the book of Proverbs, uh, uh, a lot of topics and um, some specific studies, like like I have a, an appendix on Proverbs 22.6, which um, is, I think, almost universally misunderstood, train up a child in the way he should go. And, when he's old, he'll not depart from it. So that's God's wisdom in Proverbs. Um, the other thing I'd say is that this book, David Murray finally, Professor David Murray finally said the, the thing about it I was longing to see it, some reviewers say, which is that it's a it's a biblical theology for the rest of us, I think is what he said. Okay. That in, good way to in, put in reading it. the world building, huh? That's a good way to put it. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, I, I appreciate that. I, it made my day to read that. It's a biblical theology for the rest of it, because rest of us, because as you read through it, I, I hope that the style is engaging. People say it's hard to put down, um, and that it's not like you know studying a heavy textbook, but it's like, but in the course of that, you do get a, you get instruction in the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of sin, the doctrine of man. God's plan for the ages, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, the doctrine of Christian living, doctrine of justification, doctrine of sanctification, and all of that and more in that book. Mm-hmm. Um, trying to pack that into one book. So 
uh, has a lot of uses. People have been using it in their churches for book studies and giving it to graduates and so forth. I'm glad to glad to see that. I found it a good read, and but I think personally, a, a good use of the book or a good audience for the book is somebody who's a little younger in the faith that's still trying to really understand these core doctrines of Christianity and what the Bible teaches. Uh, it does, you do a good job of explaining things in layman's terms and, and make things under, easy to understand. And, uh, you know, I would, I would gladly hand this to somebody who is, you know, maybe just a few years since, uh, you know, or, or even more recent since conversion to better understand and, and get people pointed kind of in the right direction. Cause a lot of us get saved yeah. and then we go through some kind of poor teaching for a while before we start figuring things out. And, and I, I'm of the belief that, that God eventually will work us through that and bring us out the other side to, to, mm-hmm. to, to good doctrine. But um, this is you know, a good way to kind of skip over some of that and get, get more to the good, good doctrine. Um, thanks. Now, I, I imagine somebody hearing you say that and thinking, oh, okay, I see. It's for beginners. No, it's I'm not. And I don't, and I, and I'm sorry to give that impression. It's not for be- necessarily for beginners. I think it's great for yeah. anybody. I very much enjoyed yeah. it. You said it's hard to put down. You. I, um, you were surprised when I emailed you this morning and said I finished the book because yesterday I emailed yeah. you and I said I had <laughs> half of the book finished and I was half. Yeah. I was, the Kindle said 50%. <laughs> And uh-huh. so I sat down last night and, and, um, and I'm not the fastest reader in the world, but it's, it, it it's well-written and it's, it's enjoyable to read. And, and no, I, I'm sorry. I don't mean to give the impression it's for, for beginners. I think anybody would enjoy it. Um, well, I didn't think you were saying that. So that's but, why I just, I just said that to make yeah. sure that what you were saying came through. Cause there's Hebrew, Greek, there's all sorts of stuff in there, but I, I, yeah. I try to do it in a way that it's accessible to anybody. Now, I wasn't able to, last night, read the book to. and track down all of the scripture references you well, get, because yeah. there are a yeah, lot yeah, of them yeah. in there. <laughs> but right. um, at, right, right, at least right. reading through, yeah, it was, it's, it's an enjoyable read. And, um, well, I'm, I'm so glad to hear that. Thank yeah. you. That, that's very gratifying to hear. As to your second question... Um, yeah, where do people find you in, in the book? And... Py- Pyromaniac's blog is probably the simplest way. Uh-huh. Pyromaniacs, plural, that's where... Phil Johnson used to blog, and Frank Turk and I still do. Um, that has a link it, to the conference we're doing. And, and my name, if you click on my name, that'll take you to my blog, which has my email mm-hmm. uh, there. Um, I also pastor at Copperfield Bible Church in Houston, Texas, and we've got a website. so can I, look I have to ask, I don't know. Um, is that in, in the city of Houston, or is it suburban Houston? It is suburban um it is nor it's a copperfield area is north of, of houston downtown oh, okay i was just wondering so if you got of, your sermon subpoenaed no i did i did not <laughs> okay uh, but they're online she could listen to all of them she wanted they're online <laughs> yeah <laughs> and she's welcome to but no i didn't get subpoenaed and for anybody That's who might be problem. listening years down the road um the the mayor of houston was who is a uh, uh professing she's a lesbian if i remember correctly yeah. And um, I, she's not just professing. I think she's practicing. Practicing, right? <laughs> I understand. That's right. And uh-huh. she subpoenaed all the sermons from pastors in the city of Houston 
to make sure that they're not speaking out against homosexuality. Yep. Any anything critical of her or her bill that might make it possible for transgender men to go into women's bathrooms, uh-huh. and um, yep, any, anything critical, anything about homosexuality. So, um, yep, well, she I, uh, got some firestorm and backed off on uh, that one for now. Yeah, uh, yeah, that was quite an ordeal. So that's how, how they could find me: Copperfield Bible Church or Pyromaniacs blog. And I'll uh, I'll definitely have a link to Pyromaniacs in the show notes. This is episode 79, so the link will be echozoe.com slash 79 once it's posted. Anybody listening should be active by the time you hear this. Echozoe.com slash 79. We'll have, I'll have both of them on there. I'll have Biblical Christianity and Team Pyro. Thank you. So, Appreciate it. Yeah, well, I am me a big favor. very grateful for your time today and uh, coming on and talk about my favorite subject, obviously, as a Christian. Should be the favorite of any Christian. Talk about the gospel. Yes. Yep, it's the sine qua non. Without that, we got nothing. Exactly. Echo Zoe Radio is an outreach of Echo Zoe Ministries. If you are blessed by the show, please consider offering your support. There are many things you can do to help, including prayer, sharing the show with others, and your financial support. Echo Zoe Ministries is a registered nonprofit organization with 501c3 tax-exempt status, and your donations are tax-deductible. For more information about how you can support Echozoe Ministries, please visit echozoe.com support. That wraps up episode 182. Thanks for listening to Echozoe Radio. Please also come over and check out the Echozoe Ministries Locals community. Use the promo code in the pin post to gain access to all of the premium content available at the community, including Jerusalem's King and the Conquest. And I had reached out to a couple of repeat guests that I had hoped to interview this month, and both were more than happy to come on uh, to do another show with me, but too busy to do it for June. So I should have a July episode lined up and likely August as well. So Lord willing, we'll be back next month with that July episode of Echo Zoe Radio. <laughs>